Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast Barclays Corporate Banking. Over the next 15 minutes, I'll be joined by Hafi Ali, Market Director, and Marco Di Benedictis, Head of Sustainable and Transition Finance, to discuss what it means to be a captive insurance company customer of a bank. The trio debate the relationships between corporate sponsor, captive and banking partner, the impact of the pandemic and how the hard insurance market has impacted collateral requirements. They also address what ESG means for captives and the broader trends in ESG and banking. But Taffy begins by telling us what it actually means to be a captive customer of a bank. Yeah, hi Richard, it's uh, it's good to be back. So it's important uh, when a captive chooses its banking partner, it does so with confidence that the bank can look after their immediate and future needs. Uh, what, what is it I mean by that? Well, being global, uh, does this allow the captive in future to obtain support from the bank in multiple locations? And given its size, it's going to be rated, which means counterparties and fronting insurers will have a lot of comfort. Does it understand the industry and how this works? Most captives employ a captive manager. So to have a bank that can deal with a multi-mandated approach is absolutely vital. As well as having a captive team, we have found through feedback that customers prefer dealing with banking partners who have knowledge of their industry. Something else I've found uh, through feedback is making sure you have an aligned and aligned credit and risk team. Because uh, when it comes to onboarding and working with uh, changes in legislation, there's nothing better to have an aligned team. It's good to have a global trade offering also. So most captives will require letters of credit to fronting insurers. And given a number involve the US being compliant through the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, NAIC, is, is absolutely key. Other uh, things um, I think I'll include in there are things like uh, online digital platforms, uh, a choice of cash and liquidity solutions. Certainly having a choice of liquidity solutions at the moment gives a captive far greater opportunity for potential returns. Having things like a relationship approach and being holistic when it comes to a relationship. So do they look after the parent company as well as the captive or do they work in silos? So I think they're the key things, Richard. Yeah, and that, that comment you made there, Happy, about kind of that relationship with the parent, we'll definitely come on to that a little bit later on in, in the podcast. But one of the areas you did mention there was were kind of digital and the pandemic and the associated travel restrictions have obviously really impacted the kind of banking operations for, for everyone, including captives. How has it impacted you know, captives and, and the banking relationships they have? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think... Um, if you look at the typical nature of captives, then uh, they would uh, ordinarily travel. And I know because of the pandemic, no one's been able to do that. So it, it's not just uh, traveling for traveling's sake, but you know, it's because of the domicile of choice for the board meetings. Uh, there's often a prerequisite that the meetings are held in location, uh, a lot to do with mind and matter and control. Uh, and whilst captives are not hugely transactional, uh, they do often result in manual transactions and payments, for example, so I know the industry as a whole is looking to change that here. So the pandemic and travel restrictions has meant that captives boards, domiciles and regulators and captive managers have all had to think, and service providers, have all had to think about how they can best continue, you know, with this kind of uh, business of uh, ongoing dealing, dealing with people. Uh, in fact, I think we've seen some jurisdictions, Guernsey as an example, come up with a pilot for pre-authorization of sales under certain conditions. This gets them a sell within 48 hours. 
the hard market across all lines in industries um, has resulted in many more inquiries and formations of new captives and sales. All of these would need a new bank account and or new facilities such as letters of credit. So I guess from a bank's perspective, and uh, what we have found is from feedback, making the best use of technology out there and using it as part of their ongoing risk mitigation onboarding procedures is going to be absolutely key. You mentioned, of course, that the hard market has prompted a lot of new captive formations uh, all around the world, which is, which is really interesting to see. In terms of what impact the hard market has had with regards to kind of requirements and demands for letters of credit and, and collateral, how, how has that played out? Because we know that captives, old or new, are taking on more risk than ever before. Yeah. So we've seen uh, across all jurisdictions, as captives introduce new lines and have more global operations, the need to use fronting insurers is even greater. This has resulted in greater requirements for things like letters of credit. In this industry, they tend to be collateralized um, as most captives are not rated. Having a bank, Richard, that can deal with changes up and down and with new instructions efficiently and quickly is really important. All this has a knock-on effect ultimately to the uh, at the front insurer, the sedent. On the collateral, given the low rates of interest, which is no immediate sign of improving, many have been looking at alternative asset classes that may provide a pickup in yield, but not compromise the value. So what we have found is that uh, whilst there's a need for diversification, Richard, it's not the primary driver now, but for a bank that can show solutions with an open architecture approach that provides a potential for yield pickup with growth potential is going to be absolutely key. So we have touched on the, the hard market, the pandemic, two of the biggest topics, well, facing all of us, but especially the hard market being one of the biggest topics in the insurance market specifically. The other real buzzword or acronym is is ESG at the moment, Environmental, Social and Governance, and it's not going to be going away anytime soon. Now, Happy's going to talk to us a little bit about the uh, kind of captive side specifically of this, but I'm delighted to say we also have Marco Di Benedictis, Head of Sustainable and Transition Finance at Barclays, joining us now. Marco, you're obviously a specialist and focused in this area. How is ESG changing the kind of corporate and banking environment? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting space. And I have to say that the velocity of change is something that I'm just going to go through now with you with, with you all and also how this is really becoming a strategic imperative across not just the corporate space, but also the banking space too. Um, so so I guess I guess we probably define, like a lot of things, I guess we probably define this in the, the sort of pre-COVID or pre-2020 and post-COVID world. So I would say that the pre-2020, it was very much around green financing and the idea idea of impact and, and environmental impact in, in certain sectors and, and also what we could be doing to look to a greener future. Public sector and supranationals are really driving the market, particularly the bond market in terms of what was being raised in terms and, and issued in terms of green bonds. And also uh, towards the end of 2019, there was this rise of super projects, particularly in the renewable space, um, offshore wind alongside a number of big uh, projects uh, in solar and other forms of renewable energy. Um, but really, I think the prominence of that has been around the new technologies that not just banks, but also equity holders have been really interested in supporting. Um, but now, uh, as we look post-COVID, the focus has really been much more around sustainability financing. So it's not just the E, the environmental bit, but also focusing on S and G. And a lot of what has been driven in, in the post-COVID world has been in the bank space and also in the uh, general 
general corporate space, but really amongst the, the mega cap, the transitioning names, so oil and gas companies um, and, and, and other financial institutions. So what, what, what are stakeholders really saying? And I guess the important bit is that, you know, it's not just enough to talk about environmental impact. We want to talk about what you are doing, how you're generating your money, and also us as, as employees, the question is how are we working? You know, uh, what, what is our well-being like? This has really come to the fore off the back of what we're doing, uh, what has been done in, in the post-COVID world. What does return to office look like? You know, what does, um, you know, where are we sourcing our energy? All of these questions are now in play for a number of different stakeholders to ask. Um, other things that we think about is how we impacting job job creation and how are we managing to keep people in employment. Um, I think that's a really key part that we're seeing in this post-COVID world. And also, you know, what does it really mean to work in these existing jobs? You know, diversity and inclusion, well-being, ESG, Black Lives Matter, all of these things are coming up and up higher and higher on our agendas. And, and that, I think, is what is really excellent um, and, and makes this a really interesting space, particularly ESG, supporting ESG messaging for corporate and really how as a provider of these of, of services and products um, it's, it's really imperative for, for, for a bank to really have really strong credentials in this kind of space to allow our corporates, captives, non-banking financial institutions and other large corporates to really develop and prove that that message is consistent all the way through the organisation. Thanks, Marco. Yeah, really good uh, context setter for us to find out what's really going on in, in the ESG area across many different kind of corporate spaces. Hafi, specifically to captives then, kind of what are you hearing on the ground? Because I'm starting to hear a little bit more discussion from captive managers and, and captive owners about how their captive could play some kind of role in, in, the, in the corporate's ESG agenda. Indeed, Richard. So I think a number of angles here for a captive or a corporate sponsor. Um, certainly when choosing a bank, um, this will be to consider, does the bank itself has a, have an ESG agenda? Uh, what are they doing about offsetting their own carbon footprint? Having an ESG compliant product solutions uh, for their customers, whether by providing deposits, investments or debt. The corporates themselves having an, a, their own ESG agenda and looking at ways to offset. We've seen early discussions, as you mentioned, being held on this with captive managers and corporates. Um, and lastly, corporates looking at their captives around how they can utilize the captive to offset their carbon footprint by investing into ESG um, projects. So we've seen particularly a, a lot of interest in this area. And I think in summary, the ESG agenda affecting us globally is not going away. I believe we will see a lot more innovation within the captive industry to pick up on this. Yeah, certainly. That's what I'm hearing, that um, corporates are starting to ask the question, how can their captive play a role in supporting their own ESG agenda? And, and they're obviously looking for that joined up approach. So it'll be interesting to see how those plans come to fruition over the next 12, 24 months or so. Um, moving track then slightly, Happy. Um, we talked before about what it means to be a, a captive customer of a bank. Uh, there's a few other areas I'd like to just briefly explore as well. What is involved then? We hear about lots of new uh, captives, being formed. Obviously, captives don't always stay with the same partners uh, throughout their life cycle. What is involved in onboarding a, a new captive insurance client? Um, so it's no longer simply about completing documentation and providing certified copies of incorporation, list of directors and shareholders, structure charts, ID, usual stuff um, that the bank needs to understand You know what, what they're onboarding. But it also needs to understand whether it fits into their own risk and commercial profile. 
so what do I mean by that? Well, most banks, um, from what I hear, will want to understand where the origin of the funds were, are coming from. You know, who's funding that captive? How's that been generating? In which locations? And who was involved? The answer to any of these may well give rise to further questions for documentation or clarification, which may lead it to sitting outside that particular bank's risk appetite or indeed longer lead times. Secondly, I think um, uh, a lot of it's to do with what it's worth to a bank. Uh, given the global nature of banks now and provider of far more complex solutions across and across borders, it, they would need to have resource to deal with, I suppose, smaller structures. So furthermore, given continuation of low interest rates, it's unlikely that banks um, solely rely on deposit or credit margins as a source of revenue. We've seen, for example, in the UK post ring fencing, where the results of the government policy to split banks into two, there's, there's a UK version and an international version. The UK version pretty much focused on the UK investor um, and provide a very simplified banking solution, whereas the international version was far more complex, gave more uh, complexity in product set and works across borders. But that split meant that the international approach just couldn't meet the needs of the kind of retail type customer and they needed to be of a particular size. So obviously, um, as we touched upon very, very early on in the pod, uh, a captive has its own bank account and, and banking partner. Is it, is it common for a captive to have the same banking partner as its uh, parent or, or corporate sponsor? Yeah, good, really good questions. And uh, what we've found uh, is once the captive manager would facilitate the incorporation of the structure and set up of the board, there tends to be some influence from the corporate sponsor in terms of banking provider. Now, there could be many reasons for this, Richard, but on the whole, what we found is to do with onboarding and KYC. They, they know me, so you know it should be okay to onboard my captive as well. Now, whilst that makes sense, um, typically most banks um, work, work different in different locations. They'll have their own onboarding, their own nuances, their own set of KYC procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, um, it doesn't always ring true uh, to choose the same bank. Um, but what is really important and what we see a lot uh, in the marketplace is having a joined up approach. Now, that's really um, of use to, to that captive. So what would be some of those those benefits then, Hafi, in regards to having that same banking partner? As, as you said, it's not always not always completely common. It might, might not always be as straightforward as, as people might assume it to be. So what are those those benefits? Yeah, Richard. So um, what we found is um, working with a global bank that understands the industry and having an aligned risk and onboarding team, whilst respecting the different jurisdictions and nuances for onboarding, the different ways they do things in those jurisdictions is, is really of key and having that kind of holistic relationship approach. And so you said size matters earlier before. How, how does that impact if there is that kind of multiple relationships, if, if it is a big bank and it's got those multiple relationships with the captive and the corporate sponsor, how does, how does that help the process? So that's all to do with um, the kind of back-end connectivity and having that holistic approach, being able to kind of view not only that corporate relationship, but also the captive as well and not taking each in isolation. So, uh, we kind of mentioned, I mentioned before that um, banks can't really rely on deposit and credit margins uh, any longer. So having that holistic approach and understanding the, the worth of that total relationship is absolutely key. And on yeah, digitization, Hafi, does that having that, again, common banking partner, does that help kind of unlock those benefits further? 
Yeah, absolutely, uh, Richard. So it's not just about, um, you know, building that um, connectivity on the relationship side, but actually all term, better terms for uh, deposits or lending. But actually it, it can save a lot of treasurers and captive managers time and efficiency by having common banking platforms. Um, so the whole digital uh, agenda is very real out there. And now that you're able to connect with a lot of um, uh, networks across the globe, uh, it just provides that kind of seamless and frictionless opportunity for both the captive, the corporate, the treasurer, uh, and all around saves time and money. So thank you to Hafi Ali and Marco Di Benedictis of Barclays Corporate Banking for a very informative 15 minutes on the nature of captive insurance and banking. If you'd like more information on our guests or friends of the podcast Barclays, then please do visit their pages on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website. We have also put links in the episode show notes. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.